We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 this morning, so we will have the scripture up on the screen, but if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. And the sermon this morning is God makes the impossible possible. God makes the impossible possible. And so we're going to specifically look at this one passage of scripture. Um, I might mention other verses, but we're going to stay right here in Matthew 19. And uh, before we dive into Matthew, I do want to make you aware that starting in February, so a couple of Sundays from now, um, we're going to start our next book of the Bible. Uh, We've gone through, since I've been here, uh, we've been here, uh, we accepted our call here a little over three years ago. It was three years ago at some point in this past week. And uh, in that time, we have studied word by word the the chapter, the books, I'll get this right. So, the cold medicine is still wearing off, okay? So if I mix up my words or twist my words, then you know, you know what's going on. But anyway, um, we have gone through the books of Philippians, Jonah, First uh, Peter, First John. I believe, I believe those are, uh, unless I'm missing one, those are the four main books that we've covered. Uh, all of those books being fairly short and taking several months to get through each. Uh, Jeremiah by word count, which is what we will be getting to in a couple of weeks, is the longest book in the Bible by word count. Now, Psalms, of course, has more lines because it's written in poetic form, so the, the, the lines are shorter, the verses are shorter, um, but there are many chapters in Jeremiah that have over 50 verses, and so we will be in Jeremiah for the next 16 years. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm playing... So what we're going to do, I've, I have been studying Jeremiah, uh, my brother-in-law Taylor and I were talking about this yesterday, I've been studying Jeremiah since September really, um, but really diving into it the last few weeks since Christmas, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to group a lot of the passages together, because a lot of times in Jeremiah, if you've studied the major prophets, which the, the longer books, the prophetic books in the Old Testament, then you know that a lot of times they repeat themselves. And so what I'm trying to do is uh, I'm trying to organize it in a way where uh, things will be matched together. And whereas in previous books we went word by word and didn't skip a word, um, we, we simply won't have time to do that in Jeremiah. And so what I plan to do is um, we're not going to skip anything. I will heavily summarize parts of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, but the plan is, is we're going to spend from February uh, through August in Jeremiah. And so we will probably take some Sundays to look at some specific things that might not be in Jeremiah, uh, but for the most part, that's where we'll be. But the next couple of weeks, we are going to be uh, not in Jeremiah yet, and today we're in Matthew chapter 19. And in this passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see um, that God makes the impossible possible, but we're also going to look at these, uh, that's the main point of, the, of, of what we're going to look at, and you will see that, it will be clear. But we're also going to look at the fact that sometimes we make it impossible to come to God or to know what he is thinking, or or you'll you'll see as we get into this. So in uh, Jeremiah, not yet, Matthew chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 13, many of you are familiar with both of these passages that we're going to look at here. Uh, Beginning in verse 13, then children were brought to him that he might that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and went away. So 
as we look at this, these first few verses here, uh, verses 13 through 15, what we see is this episode, and most of you heard this. If you, if you grew up in church, you probably heard this in Sunday school at some point. You've probably, uh, many of you in, in the room have heard this. Uh, but there's, there's this passage where the children, people are bringing the children to Jesus, and they're coming to him. You've probably seen a painting of the children sitting in his lap reflecting this uh, passage. Uh, the, and so the people are bringing the children to Jesus, and, which is a good thing, right? But the disciples, the disciples being the people who are supposed to know Jesus the best, his, his closest friends and allies, the people that he has been pouring his life into, teaching them um, what God's word says and how to observe it. And so the disciples rebuke them. They say, hey, Jesus ain't got time for these kids. Okay, that's the southern translation of what they said. But uh, he, so he, they tell them this, and, and Jesus says, what, what are you doing? And as we see many times with Jesus and the disciples, he just shakes his head and has a deep sigh. It's like when I see J- John Michael do something every other day that makes me do that. And he, there's just this, you know, um, they, they don't quite have it yet, you know. They're getting there, but they, they, they just don't quite understand. And in verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. But unfortunately, sometimes we do hinder people, not, not just children, um, but you will, you will see how there are many hindrances to us coming to know Jesus or that we, hindrances or ways that we hinder others from coming to know him and knowing him fully. And here we, we literally see that they are telling the people not to bring the children to Jesus. But where is the best place for the children to be? With Jesus. And so we have to be careful because sometimes, and this will be point one of the sermon, sometimes we make it impossible for others to come to Jesus. Now, with this, in this situation, it was simply the disciples were telling the parents or whoever were bringing the kids, hey, cut it out. Jesus doesn't have time for the kids right now. This is below him. You know, take him to the children's minister or something to that effect. Uh, okay, maybe they didn't have children's ministers, but you get my point. And sometimes we prevent people in, our, in the present day, a point of application here would be we can prevent people from coming to know Jesus. Maybe um, it's the person who needs a ride to church and we drive right by their house. Maybe it's literally we're not taking them to church to a place where they can know Jesus, learn about Jesus, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's our actions. Maybe we, we are an employer who has someone working for us and we do not show them the love of Jesus, and our actions prevent them from wanting to know the God that we claim to know. Or maybe we're an employee, and our boss is not a Christian, and we work for him, and we claim to know Jesus, and yet we live our life, our lives, or in this case, in this example, our, the life, our life in a way that prevents him from having any desire from wanting to know Jesus. And so we have to be careful to make sure that when it comes to knowing God, we're not hindering people from doing that. I can tell you 
the place where this is most crucial, in my opinion, our homes. How many parents have gone to church throughout the centuries, they've been a part of the church, and then they go home and they're a completely different person. And their kids look at what their parents claim to have, and they don't want any part of that. Because what their parents are living out is not a, what the Bible would call Christianity or what the Bible would, would reflect as following Jesus. And so children equate the way their parents are acting with the Bible, even if it shouldn't be, even if it's a, a wrong, if it's a misrepresentation of what the Bible says, people relate that to that. And so I, my entire adult life, since before Rose and I have had children, one of our main desires is that we would point our children to Jesus, that we would be the ones sitting them in his lap, not hindering them from getting there. I, don't, I, I never want to live my life in a way that reflects poorly on Jesus and prevents people from coming to know him, especially my children. And so when I act in a way that's not appropriate or when Rose acts in a way that's not appropriate according to what God's word says, we try to own up to that and to tell our kids we're sorry, to tell one another we're sorry. We try to live in a way, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. There are going to be days where we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we're not who we need to be. Um, And in those moments, we repent. We ask God to forgive us, but we also ask the people who we sinned against to forgive us. And if that's our children, then that's our children. And some of you in here are like, well, good thing I don't have children. Well, it doesn't let you off the hook because other, other people's children watch you also. And we can hope to live a life where, uh, now, he would not say this now. I actually heard him say the opposite a few weeks ago. Uh, anybody in here remember Charles Barkley? Hopefully. Uh, three of you, awesome. Uh, I would say I'm an old man, but he's still on TV. He's still relevant. But he's, he was a basketball player, played for the 76ers and the Suns and the Rockets. I might be forgetting someone, but anyway. Uh, and when I was a kid, he, 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 uh, was, he would act crazy. He would say whatever he wanted to say. And, and someone said to him, like, you're a role model for children. You can't act this way. And he was like, I'm not a role model for kids. I, if they're looking at me for a role model, they need to look at somebody else. Well, you can say that all you want, but did kids still look up to Charles Barkley? Absolutely. Apparently not many of y'all, but uh, some kids did. And, uh, and, and he wouldn't say that now. He's a mature adult now. I don't know how mature, but anyway, uh, he, I heard him just the other day talking about how he wishes he would have seen that differently when he was younger. And the fact is, is that whether we have kids or not, uh, many of the disciples at this point did not have kids, uh, and yet... That here they are influencing kids. And so we have a responsibility to make sure that not only, I would say, are, are we not preventing the kids from coming to Jesus, but that we are part of the reason why the kids are coming to Jesus. Now, I said earlier I desire to sit my kids right in Jesus' lap. I can't save my kids. John Michael's already put his faith in Jesus. Emma hasn't yet. She's four. Um, we can do everything we can to point our kids in the right direction, to teach them biblical truth, uh, but there is going to come a time in all of our lives where we are accountable to God for ourselves. We don't get to have, get into heaven just because our parents had faith or someone else had faith. 
So here's another reason why it's so important for us to not prevent children from coming to Jesus or anybody from coming to Jesus, but for us to help them get there because they are accountable. It doesn't matter how much you love Jesus or it doesn't matter how much your spouse loves Jesus or your mama loves Jesus or whoever loves Jesus. It matters how much you love Jesus. So um, number one, sometimes we make it impossible for others to come to Jesus. Uh, Number two, let's keep reading um, in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him. So this is, I mean, right after the passage we just stopped reading, Matthew goes right into verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying. Now, I want you to notice that no one prevents this man from getting to Jesus, right? No one's turning him away. And I think I know why, and many of you know why, because this is the passage of the rich young man. I believe that it was viewed as a wealthy man had a right to Jesus, more of a right than the kids did. Now, Jesus didn't see it that way, obviously, and we shouldn't see it that way, but here they saw it this way. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? Now, before we even read this, I'm going to give you point number two. Point number two is, if point number one is sometimes we make it impossible for others to know God, sometimes our wrong ideas about the Bible make it impossible for others to know God. So our biblical misunderstandings, sometimes our biblical misunderstandings make it impossible for people to know God. And, and, and this is one of those situations. This young man, and I would say he's not alone. I would say the fact that he was allowed to walk, stroll right up to Jesus and while they were preventing kids, that he wasn't the only one who had some biblical misunderstandings during this time. But he comes up to him and he says, Teacher, what, must, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, we can see that there is a wrong understanding here because biblically speaking, if, you re, if you're to read the Bible, the only thing that we can do to have eternal life is to have faith in what God has done. It's not about any work that we can do. We can't be good enough to get to heaven. We have to rely on the goodness of God. We have to put our faith in him and in the work that Christ did on the cross, that he died for us. He died so that we could have eternal life. And so now he had not died up to this point. This was not understood by the people of the time yet. So the rich young man comes up to him and says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Um, Let's keep reading. And he said to him, verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. All right, so a few things. Um, Jesus is being a little tongue-in-cheek here, right? He, he is good. Jesus is good. Jesus never sinned. He is God. He is making it known that if this man, is, it, he's basically saying, are you saying that I'm God? Because, of course, he is. And uh, this, is, this is made very clear throughout the New Testament in many ways where Jesus equates himself with God. I think the most clear, in my opinion, would be uh, when he was having this discussion with the Pharisees and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, of course, the Pharisees would know what he was talking about because when Moses asked God, who should I say is sending me back to the Egyptians, I am is sending you, right? And so Jesus calls himself, I am, in the gospel according to John. And so, of course, Jesus is seeing himself as God, but what, who does this young man see him as? And so he's asking him these questions to make him think. Um, it, but then there's this. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Hey, this is actually true. 
if, if we are born and keep the commandments perfectly, we get to go to heaven. So if you're in here and you've never sinned, then apart from Jesus, you get to go to heaven. But there's a problem with that. The problem is, is that, according to the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, let's, let's think about the Ten Commandments, okay? Uh, how many of you have ever dishonored your mother or father? Anyone in here? Just raise your hand if you've ever dishonored your mother and father. Okay, about 20% of you. Awesome. Um, no, more than that, raise your hand. I'm just picking. Uh, okay, let me ask you this. This is a little more embarrassing. You might not want to raise your hand for this, but I'll go ahead and raise my hand so, because I have done this. And if anyone else wants to admit it, then feel free. But have you ever stolen anything, no matter how small? Okay, well, uh, you deserve hell also. Um, how many in, of you in here um, have ever not given God the glory and the, the respect that he deserves? Anybody? Uh, you, you put something else before God. Okay, well, it appears that we all deserve to go to hell. So this doesn't apply for any of us. Um, and so when it says... If you would enter life, keep the commandments, well, we're all in trouble because we've, we've all broken the commandments. Uh, and that's just the Ten Commandments. That's not, that's not all of them, right? In verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Because <laughs> that would make it easier, right? If, if, uh, if, the, if the commandment was you can never cheat on your spouse, all right, I have a shot at it, right? There are some commandments that, I've done fairly well at keeping. But then even if you get into Jesus' description of what cheating is, well, we won't go into that, but some of us might be in trouble. All right. So which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. Okay, that's pretty easy, except Jesus later describes if you ever had hate in your heart against a man, you have committed murder. Oh, that's a little harder. Because at some point in my life, I have hated. Okay, anyway. Um, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, I just said that one. However, um, this means anything before marriage. This means any thoughts of lust, anything like that. Then you've committed adultery, according to Jesus. Um, you shall not steal. I admitted earlier I broke that one. You shall not bear false witness. Has anyone ever in here ever told a lie? Okay. So, now listen to this dude. Well, we're not finished yet. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a bunch of those we've broken, maybe not to the um, fullness of the heart of the law, but according to what Jesus has said encompasses the law, we probably, most of us have broken most of those or all of those. Um, and then in verse 20, the young man said to, G to him, to Jesus, all these I have kept. Uh, either this is an awesome dude, or he is misunderstanding the implications of the commandments, okay? All these I have kept, what do I still lack? So let's pretend he has kept all of these for a moment. He knows that there's still something else that's missing. He understands that he has not inherited eternal life yet. Because he's, he's asking, I've done this, what do I still lack? And I would say that he probably has not done all of this, that he probably is misunderstanding the what, what is, uh, to me, obvious, I think what to most of us is obvious, um, I mean, how many kids do you know who have perfectly obeyed their, and honored their father and mother? 
right? Not, not many. And so I think he has a misunderstanding. But um, what, do, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now, you have to understand this passage in the context of the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is not saying, you do this one thing and you're saved. Jesus knows that this man cannot do this one thing because this one man is a sinner, and apart from God, we cannot overcome our sin. And this is the thing that this, this, we all have that thing. We all have, and for many of us, it's more than one thing. For some of us, it's many things. But we all have that thing that we struggle with when it comes to obeying God. Maybe your thing is to not worry. Maybe your thing is like this young man. Maybe it's um, money has become your God. You have valued money more than you should. And I'm not saying money's not important. Money is very important to us and to our society. Um, but God is more important. And following God and obeying God is more important than our money also. Maybe your one thing is that you just can't seem to put others first. Maybe, you know, fill in the blank. We all know what our one thing is, unless you're like this rich young man and you need someone to help point it out to you, uh, which in that case it will probably take a private personal conversation like with this young man. Um, But he knew he still lacked something. Jesus tells him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So sometimes our possessions keep us from coming to God. Sometimes our possessions make it impossible for us to come to God. Sometimes the the gods, the little g gods that we put in our life make it impossible for us to come to God. Sometimes and this would be point number two, our things, possessions, stuff, whatever you want to say, keep us from coming to God. And that's the case with this man. Look at verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. If you were told it only takes one thing for you to inherit eternal life, I would like to think that most of us in this room would be willing to make that sacrifice. It's just one thing, right? But God knew what was impossible for this man. Jesus knew what was impossible for this man. And apart from God, it was impossible for this man to sacrifice his wealth in order to have a relationship with God. Money was his God, not big G God, not Yahweh, not Jesus. And so... He had put his faith in the wrong thing. And he loved this one thing so much. And I'm I'm saying this one thing because we can put our one thing in place of money. He loved this one thing so much that it prevented him not only from being all he could be for Jesus, it prevented him from even coming and following Jesus. And so do you have a one thing? Because sometimes our things prevent us from knowing God, from coming to God. So, continuing reading, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, 
Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when I was a teenager, uh, Saturday Night Live had this skit where uh, it was the Rich Man's Institute, and they had blown up a needle that was so big and a camel could pass through it. And uh, that's not what this is talking about. There, there are no loopholes here. How, how big is the eye of a needle? Tiny, tiny. I mean, it's hard to get the thread through it sometimes. How big is a camel? Bigger than that. And so this, of course, this is hyperbole, which is like, you know, exaggeration for effect. But it's difficult for people who already have a God to trust the one true God. And we might look at wealth and say, well, I'm not wealthy, so this isn't a problem for me. But I, again, I believe that most of us have our one thing, our problem, the thing that, that is a temptation that prevents us from knowing God wholly. But also, let me say this. There is this insane statistic from 2017 where 0.7%, so less than 1%, of the people on earth own 47% of the wealth. 0.7% owns 47% of the wealth. And I have this document, this article, if if you would like to see this um, later. I can forward it to you. But that's not all, because most of us are like, well, we're not in that 0.7, right? (laughs) None of us in this room are. I don't care how wealthy you are. You're not in that 0.7. and so that's, that's not us, so it, that's okay. But how about this? 70% of the world own, so cash, but also wealth of their, the value of their possessions, 70% of the world own less than $10,000. 10000 So if you drive a car that's less than five years old, you own you're more wealthy than 70% of the world. If you own a house, and you, or even if you have a mortgage, and you have more than $10,000 worth of that paid off, and that equity is, is yours, you are wealthier than 70% of the people in the world. If we can go into our bathroom and turn on running water, or flush a toilet, or take a shower, we are extravagantly wealthy compared to some people in the world. And I've had the privilege and the joy, and I hope I get to continue to do this uh, for the rest of the days that God gives me here on this earth, but I've had the, the privilege of going into countries like the Dominican Republic and on the border of Haiti and uh, Guatemala and um, Thailand and the Philippines and just different places around the world. And I have seen, uh, I've seen that 0.7% and how they live, and I have seen people who, as Terry and Nan can testify to, who have to walk miles for clean water. I have seen people who have nothing, who don't know where their food is coming from that day, much less in a month. And so I have seen the truly impoverished. And I would say that according to 
comparatively speaking, everybody in this room is wealthy. And so, would we, if we were in the presence of Jesus and he asked us to sell everything we had and give it to the poor, would we? Would we walk away sad? Or would we joyfully do what God has called us to do? And I'm, I can't answer that for you. I, can't, I can answer it for myself. I won't answer it up here in front of you, but I think I know the answer. But, you know, what good does hypothetical do us sometimes until we're put in that position? Um, because I always, like, question, like, when people get sick and, and they question God and why, why is this happening to me, I used to, like, think, why would you do that, like? Whether you're sick or healthy, God is God. Why would you question him just because you get sick? And then I got sick. <laughs> and I was like, God, why is this happening to me? Help me. Please get, this, get me through this. Stop this pain. And so I don't want to answer hypothetically what I would do in this situation because I know that we all have our one thing. And what if God asked for my one thing? Abraham had a one thing, Right? It was his descendants, and he was asked to take his son up the mountain and to sacrifice him to God. Now, God was never going to ask him to actually go through with this. God knew what he was doing. He was just making sure that Abraham's heart was in the right place and that he, that Abraham trusted God above all else, and he knew that, it, that this would show Abraham. God already knew what was in Abraham's heart. God doesn't test us so that he can know what's in our heart. He already knows. God tests us so that we can know what's in our heart, that he can, he can reveal to us who we truly are. And I can tell you with transparency that I have failed a lot of those tests, that God has allowed things into my life, and, to, and, and what I saw, what he revealed to me through those trials and, and through those tests was not pretty. And I'm not as strong as I think I am once those trials hit. And here's this man, and he's, asked, he's, he's given a trial. He's asked to give up the one thing that he values the most. It's his, it's his identity. What do we call this passage? The rich young ruler. It's, it's not called the, the young ruler. It's not called the man who came to ask Jesus a question. He's even identified in the Bible as the rich young man. And so... It's his identity, and he's not willing to give it up for Christ. Let me tell you that we better be willing to sacrifice anything, including our identity, for the sake of Jesus Christ. If he has asked us to obey him in any way, we have to be prepared to obey him. Now, verse 23, let me, let me reread. Let me start at the beginning of this paragraph. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? So here, their wrong understandings, so the three things, uh, we've, we've said them all now. I think I accidentally called number three, number two earlier, but I gave number two. Number one being, sometimes we prevent people. Sometimes we make it impossible for people to come to know God. Sometimes our biblical misunderstandings make it impossible for people to know God. 
And sometimes that one thing makes it impossible for people to know God. So now we're going back to point number two because even the disciples had a misunderstanding. When, they, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Because in this time, people believed that if you were wealthy, and I say in this time, there are people still today who believe this, who believe that if anything difficult comes into your life, or if you don't have the money that you need to be who you think you need to be, then there must be something wrong with the way that you're living for God. But that's, just a, that's not biblical. That's not a teaching that's in the Bible. And what we see here is that the disciples have this misunderstanding, and they're saying, hold up. If a rich person can't get saved, then who can get saved? Because in their time, they believed that the rich were those who were living for God and being blessed. Now, I don't know how they, uh, how they knew that tax collectors who were rich weren't blessed, but with this guy, it's a question. But let's remember, this isn't the first mistake that the disciples have made in this, in, in, since verse 13. We also noticed that the disciples would not let the children come to Jesus. So they misunderstood who was welcome at the feet of Jesus twice because they thought that the children would not be, but the children with their great faith and their playful desire to be with Jesus, that was a great example of what faith looks like. Even though those children probably didn't have true saving faith yet, it was a great example of what true saving faith is like. And then we see this example of this rich young man who can freely stroll up to Jesus to ask his question, according to what we know and what we see here. And the disciples thought that he was welcome to come when, in fact, because of his choice to put his wealth above God, he was not going to be present with God for eternity. And so here we see this. Who then can be saved? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. Your money can't get you there. Your obedience can't get you there. Hey, keep these commands. Well, what's the problem with that? We can't. There's always one more command, and, and eventually we're going to get to that commandment that we have not kept or that we cannot keep, and, and it's going to prevent us from having eternal life, from living with God. You, you tell me what it is that you think you can do by your power to get to heaven, and I can show you biblically where you're wrong. It is impossible with man. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God makes the impossible possible. We can come to God as liars, as uh, adulterers, as you name the sin that we went over earlier. It's people who have dishonored our mothers and fathers, thieves. We can come to God in our sin, when we should not be allowed to come to God, and we can say, forgive me, have mercy on me. I love you, and I want to follow you. I want you to save me. That should be impossible. It, it should be scandalous that we could come into the presence of such royalty and just say, hey, you know all that stuff I've done? Could you just excuse that? And he will do it. It's impossible. And yet, he has made it possible through his son. Jesus Christ came to earth, died on a cross. He paid not for his mistakes or his errors or his sins. He was perfect. He never sinned. 
He was paying for our sin. And he did that for the glory of the Father and for the good of our, of our, I mean, our eternities. So that we could have a relationship with him and live with him forever. Verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, of course, this is a question that while simultaneously showing like Peter's immaturity at this time, it also shows that he is trying to understand what Jesus is saying. And Peter and the other disciples truly have left behind so much in order to follow Jesus. And what saved them isn't what they left behind. What saved them is who they followed. What saved them isn't what they sacrificed. What saved them is what Jesus sacrificed for us. And so they, Peter said, he asked this question, what then will we have? Jesus said to them, he, he, he said, how could you ask me something like that, you wicked servant? No, he didn't say that. Let's see what he says. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. The very people who we think have it all will have nothing. And those people that I've visited in other countries who have nothing, if they have put their faith in Jesus, they will have everything. And those who have made sacrifices, there will be a day when we receive it over and over and over and over in abundance of what we have sacrificed. Now, where some misinterpretation of, of what the Bible says comes in is, is that there are people who think that we will receive that on this side of eternity if we're faithful. But the Bible, it doesn't say that necessarily. Here, we're told this is in heaven, in the new world, Jesus says. And we know that, did Jesus ever receive wealth here on his time on earth? What did he receive? A cross. He didn't even have a, a home or a bed on which to lay his head. Did the disciples receive wealth? No. Judas, of course, betrayed. The rest were martyred, except John, who lived an incredibly difficult life, who was persecuted his entire life, exiled. He went through it all. And we see over and over again, not just in the Bible, but throughout history, where these, the people who are the most faithful for following God oftentimes have it the worst here on earth as far as our environment and our wealth and things like that. And so God is not promising us that if we follow him now, we will immediately receive earthly blessings, earthly rewards. What he is promising us is that if we will follow him now, whatever it costs us, whatever we have to leave in order to follow him, if we will follow him, then we will receive reward greater than anything we could ever imagine. And in, in an innumerable amount more than what we have sacrificed, we will receive in return. 
in heaven, in glory, when we're dwelling with him for eternity. And so my question to you this morning is, as we begin to get ready for our invitation, is have you prevented yourself or someone else from coming to know Jesus? If so, you, you need to repent from that, which is to say that, tell God you're sorry for that and to turn away from that to do the opposite of that. So repenting from that would be that person that you prevented from coming to know God, apologizing to them also and seeing if there's anything you can do now to help them know God. Sometimes our things prevent us from, or sorry, sometimes our biblical misunderstandings prevent us from knowing God. Have you thought something was true about Jesus or about the Bible only to find out that it wasn't? There's only one way for us to know that what we under, currently understand is incorrect. That's for us to study God's Word. And so if you have found out that there are things in your past that, you, that prevented you from knowing God, then repent of those things. Turn from those things. And make sure that you're committed to reading His Word now so that you can understand what it actually says so that you can follow Him the right way. And then the last point is, are there things? Okay, the rich young man had his wealth. Is there something in your life that has prevented you or is preventing you from knowing Jesus fully. Because if there is, you need to let go of that thing. That's impossible by yourself. But with God, all things are possible. And so you turn to Jesus for salvation. And it's a simultaneous thing, right? You don't have to stop your sinning before you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and you tell him, I love you. I want to follow you. Lord, save me. And if he has put that conviction in your heart to ask for that thing, and you're asking for it, and, and, you're, and it's sincere, then you're going to be saved. Not because of any work that you have done, but because of what he has done in you, and because of what he has done for you on the cross. He is able to save. What, what is impossible by ourselves, he makes it possible. And, and, and then, once we have a relationship with him, once we're saved, once he has come into our heart, then he can begin to do a work in us where all those things that we've been struggling with, he begins to sanctify us. He begins to make us look more like him. He begins to melt away those sins and that disobedience so that we're no longer serving our wealth. We're serving Jesus. We're no longer a slave to our fear. We're a slave to Christ. We're no longer living for ourselves. We're living for him and for others. And so... It, we don't have to get that right and then come to God. We come to God, broken, sinners. We ask him to save us. And when we're saved, he begins to work those things out of us. He begins to fill us with himself and work us into his image. We can't do it. We have to rely on him to do it. And so, where are you this morning? Is there anything preventing you from knowing God fully, from coming to God? It, it, has it been a person in your life? Don't let any individual prevent you from coming to God. Has it been a thing? Don't let anything prevent you from coming to God. Has it been a wrong understanding of Scripture? Don't let that. Get in your Bible. Know what it says. Know truth. Come to Jesus. He will help you with all of those things. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And I just pray that during this time of invitation, that you would convict us, each one of us, for what we need to do, Lord. 
If there's any way we need to respond to you this morning, then help us to respond. But God, I don't want this to just be an invitation where for a few minutes we we consider how we're going to follow you. I want you to never let us stop thinking about how we're going to follow you. I want you to do something this morning in our midst through the power of your word and through the, the, the power of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to do something in our midst this morning that captivates us. And where we're always, not just yours, but we're always considering how we can follow you better. How we, not only do we not want to prevent others from coming to know you, how can we help others come to know you? How can we overcome the things that are in our lives that hinder us from following you the way we should? Lord, what misunderstandings do we have? Lord, clarify for us what we need to know about you. Lord, we trust you. We love you. If there's anyone in here who needs saved, I pray that you would save them this morning, that they would come and ask you to forgive them of their sins, that they would put their faith in you and that they would follow you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who struggled with any of these sins that we mentioned this morning, that they would lay them at the altar this morning, that they would trust you with them, that they would ask you to forgive them and that they would turn away from them and that they would live for you. And God, if there's some stronghold in here this morning, some sin that someone has been struggling with that just seems to have a hold of them, I pray that they wouldn't do it alone, that they would come to you, yes, Lord, but sometimes you have given us community to help us with those sins. So I pray that they would seek help, Lord, in those areas where they struggle. Convict us to respond to you in whatever way you're leading right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm gonna be standing right here. You respond to God in whatever way he's leading. If you need me to pray with you, I'll pray with you. If you need to come to the altar and pray, come to the altar and pray. If you need to pray where you are. If you need to confess a sin to God or you need to talk to me about it and have me pray with you about it, you respond to God in whatever way he's leading.